Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We will also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai John on our website, johnstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Whitwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. Ali, it's season two. We're in deep into the heart of season two. This is our third episode of te- season two. How does it feel so far? Feels great. I can't. I can't believe we've gone this far.、Um, how long has it been? It's been over a year now. I know this will be our not just our th- sec- third episode in season two, but our thirty seventh episode. So yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? If you've been listening for a long time and you would、uh, love to help us and support the show, go on to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and give us one of those five star reviews. We'd really appreciate it. Ali, today we're talking about the evolving Chinese sports apparel business. You know, recent sales figures shows that the market hitting over three hundred fifteen billion or forty six billion dollars, and it continues to grow about eleven percent a year. And we had Jason from Kantar on about a month ago, and he said that sports apparel and sports was still one of the key driving categories, even amongst COVID times. So、uh, it's still you know expected to grow. Foreign players such as Nike and Adidas have dominated the market as we know for many years. In sports apparel, Nike is the leader, about twenty-five percent share. But its number two competitor, Adidas, has fallen and replaced by Anta, which has showed a thirty-nine percent year-on-year increase in twenty twenty-two. I think that has somewhat to do with the Beijing Olympics. I mean, where's the market heading, and and is there still room for foreign brands? To discuss this and more, we have Matthew Jong. He is the general manager for Greater China of German outdoor brand Jack Wolfskin.、Uh, Matthew, or as his friends call him MJ, has been in Asia for close to 25 years. First, starting in the luxury hotel industry at Starwood in Hong Kong, before he moved to Taiwan with Nike, where he was marketing director. He then moved to Shanghai in 2010 with Nike, and later moved to the Converse brand in 2018, where he was VP and general manager. Under MJ's leadership, Converse business doubled, and MJ later joined Jack Wolfskin in January of 2022. MJ, welcome to Shanghai Zhan. Bryce Ali, good morning.、Uh, great to be on. Thanks for having me. So, MJ, you moved out to Asia way early.、Uh, you were like around, the, like you, I think it was around 1997, right? It was your first first job in Asia. 97. Yeah, I actually、oh, came、that's... out bef- before I joined the hotel business. I was actually in a a, sm- a sports marketing company, a regional sports marketing company that owned the rights for the commercial rights for all of the qualification tournaments for soccer and basketball in the region. So, for, for example, a World Cup qualification tournament for in football, our company had the rights in Asia for those tournaments, and same deal for basketball, men's, women's,、uh, youth, etc. So it was a really great experience because I was traveling half the year, maybe more than half the year, experiencing all the different cultures of Asia as as a twenty three year old, way back in the day. And you played sports in college as well, so you had a sports background, right? Yeah, Bryce. I, I played basketball at Loyola of Chicago. Upon entering Hong Kong, I immediately signed a club contract there, and I played almost ten years in Hong Kong. With a slight interruption, 
I was recruited from Jiao Tong University in Shanghai to come and play college basketball in China two years after I graduated from college in the States. So I was, I, I, and I said yes. So I went to Jiao Da for a, about a year and a half and played college hoops for their team. <laughs> so, full scholarship. That's crazy. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think I predate my basketball time when I was teaching English in Beijing back in the late 80s. And at that time, basketball was in its infancy. It was, they just put out the courts, people come out in sandals and play yeah. us. And we were some like, the foreign teachers were a bit of an enigma. <laughs> we, could, we, were, we were quite successful in beating everybody. Mm -hmm. But then they assembled a team. I don't think these students were from, from our campus at mm -hmm. all. They brought in uh, people from outside. It was one of those times, Ali, where at halftime, we'd all get chi shui, you know? <laughs> you remember those little bottles of orange, <laughs> orange soda? And like, like the last thing you, on earth you want to drink is a chi shui when you're after a uh, sweaty basketball game. But they brought in these guys from out, and they were like, they were like the tallest Chinese guys I ever seen, and they they just kicked our mm -hmm. ass. And I think that was uh, that was the message message made yeah. that we were we were no longer uh, the top team. So uh, great experience. It was super funny because no, Bryce, like it was super funny because when I played when I was brought to play there, um, as you know, the it's rever like the the policy is reversed so that's university basketball in the late 90s is where the professionals went to play after their pro careers were oh, over oh wow so like you <laughs> so i'm rolling in and all these i'm playing with a bunch of ex pros you know like who are in their you know they they were in their mid 20s maybe even early 30s um and so they, they were really really good <laughs> They were really good. It's, it's changed dramatically now, but at that time, a lot of the guys had already played club or professional basketball, and now they were playing at university level. Wow, that's incredible. I guess the question I had for you is, like, you've you stayed relevant in a market that's been so dynamic, and it's been so unpredictable, and you've just you've gone from strength to strength throughout your career. What's your secret for that, and what makes you stay in China? <sighs> You know, for me, I think one of the important things after having been in the region for 25 years, when I reflect on this, one, one thing that's really important is just wanting to be here. You know, like I, I've never been the guy who is on the expat, the full-blown, full-meal deal expat package. I was not brought here by a company. I came here because I wanted to come here. I came here because I wanted to be here and I wanted to experience the culture and the and the people, and um, and every year, you know, you start to think about where should I be, and there's just so much more to learn and to experience in this region. So that constant curiosity, and you know, the constant learning, and the constantly new relationships that you build are the things to me that one brought me out, and and two that that are keeping me here. So I wanted to be here. You know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't as if someone had brought me here and imported me and it's like, oh, you know, I'm looking around and trying to figure out whether or not I liked it. I liked it from the beginning and that's why I came. And so, but in terms of st sticking around and wh what's kind of kept me here, it's really the things that you, the three of us experience all the time. It's the constant change. It's the speed and nimbleness of 
the way business moves and the consumer moves and industries move and how you have to move. And that excite that's exciting. You know, that never, ever, ever gets boring, you know. So um, that plus the people, you know, that you meet here across the country in your travels, um, in the workplace, partners, colleagues, friends, etc. Very, very international group, you know, people with super open minds, uh, well, well-traveled people, um, well-educated, <laughs> incredibly well-educated and smart people who will keep, constantly keep you invigorated. I think all of these things are things that um, keep me sharp and keep me happy to be around. And, and they challenge me every day and they make you better. You know, so I think that's those are probably some of the factors. Yeah, I always like to say, I think I might have said this before in an earlier show, that all of us have seen three Chinas. We've seen China developing, we've seen China through mid-level growth, and we've seen a very advanced China as well. And uh, and so it's kind of been three countries, if you will, uh, over the pace of, you know, 20 years or so. So, uh, so it's always been constantly changing, as you said. It's, it's super exciting. We were always saying, like you know, in my last in my last company, we'd always say that the generations change every three years. Like it's every three years, it's a new generation. <laughs> you know, it was literally because during you know two thousand eight to two thousand twenty. I mean, I don't think anybody's experienced that level of change. You know, and especially in the sports and the sports industry. And we're talking about full blown sports revolutions happening in the blink of an eye. If you remember, because I'd listened to a few of your pods and we were talking about things like the sport of running, women's sports in China, the outdoor industry where I am now. I mean, these, these are things that took decades to evolve in, in the West or, or even longer. And, um, and, and here it's happened in a decade, like the full spectrum of, of what you think about when you think about the evolution of sport at a grassroots level has happened within the course of, you know, 10 to 12 years. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. That's right. We did a, we ran a statistic. This is pre COVID statistic, but I think we estimated there to be around a hundred plus marathons across China over a calendar year. And so over 365 days, that's like one marathon every three years, somewhere in the, in the country. So that's amazing. There were there were like thirteen when I started at when I started my in in the running business where I was before. I can't help but ask you some questions about Converse where you were pri- prior to uh, your your current job. I was there in Shanghai. I think Ali was as well uh, during that time where where we really saw the Converse brand like completely take off and just seeing. I had a car, but I. I elected to take this the the metro the subway and one of the reasons for that was that i was able to kind of see shanghai shanghainese going to work and more importantly seeing what they wear and i just remember just seeing more and more mostly women actually women wearing converse you know chuck taylor all-stars you know it was just a a massive phenomenon uh could you share some of the reasons for the success and insights into what made converse a, a growth brand at that time yeah we had a really nice run there um when i was there and i I think that a lot of credit for this goes to just a fantastic team um that really had their finger on the pulse of the consumer in china at that time uh i was brought in by a couple of marketing people you know so the gm of converse when i was brought in as a marketing leader uh carol chen who was a legend through her time in, you know, um, China, the China sports, you know, history of the last 20 years. 
she was a marketer. You know, she was a marketing person who became a general manager um, through the course of her career. Uh, but she led the Beijing Olympics work, all the the entire Beijing Olympics initiative for Nike back in 2008. So she has a, she was a, a blue blood marketer, and the CEO of Converse at the time was Davide Grasso. Uh, who was the ex CMO of Nike? So we're talking about people who are leading the brand, who are marketing leaders. And so when when Carol asked me to come in as to to lead the marketing team, she was like, "Look, I understand brand marketing and the importance of brand marketing. I'm going to fight for all the resources that you need to be able to do your job the best way because I know how important building the brand is and brand heat is going to be for the you know for this exercise because because Converse was lagging far behind and underperforming." Uh, quite drastically in China in you know in 2015 2014 you know so I had backing we we had a mindset at the top that we need to rebuild it had to come from up the brand and then the other thing that I have to give credit for Carol was she had done a lot of dirty work um, in the, the the couple of years before cleaning up the marketplace you know and that's really really hard you know so when the marketplace is saturated with inventory. There's lots of old stuff in the market. The brand suffers, and so when I came in, she, the runway was pretty clear at that point from those fundamental levels. Making sure that there's a, a fairly decent pull market and and not a lot of stuff in the marketplace to have to have been put on sale. The first thing we did is we started to talk about product, and there was a misconception at the time that. Everything had to be super value based for consumers in China. When in fact, you know, our chi- our consumers in China are incredibly demanding, and when they walk into a store, they don't look for the cheapest product; they look for the best product. We weren't putting the best product in front of the consumer. We were putting our most value, you know, our cheapest stuff, in front of the consumer. When we started to very, very, you know, and it takes eighteen months, right, for product machine engine to get to start kicking into gear. So we had to plan about a year and a half out. And we had to sort of replan our business around a more premium product proposition for Converse. And when we did that, and we start, we we were able to kind of hold down the fort, keep the marketplace clean, build up some pretty cool experiences at store level and on digital. And we were ready to put premium product into the marketplace. And when we did, the consumers responded. Fundamentals on inventory, fundamentals on product, and then came the fun part, which was you know building the brand through the marketing lens and. Again, just some amazing people uh, we were able to bring into the into the marketing team. There, uh, a woman named Leslie Chang came in, and she was doing brand communication. She had come from different agencies. Probably you know Leslie Bryce. Um, she was with AKUA before. Used to work for me. <laughs> well, you know, no surprise. I mean, she was she's she was fantastic. She ran the entire brand communications, advertising um, part of the business, and um, and a woman called uh, Rebecca Chu, who's most recently the marketing director at Golden Goose in China. Um, came over to run PR, and together we had this two-headed marketing, sort of a two-headed sort of communications offense um, that really, really was able to get into the pulse of the consumer and do some fantastic work. Um, that was a bit disruptive and a bit um, had some real attitude. And and I would be remiss not to mention a, a woman called Ren Jing. Uh, Ren Jing was like this super cool nor like. Tianjin run like she's like super underground she was very very pure to the spirit of the old spirit of converse which was like counterculture super you know kind of like rebellious you know grungy you know and all that and she was she had the brand before I arrived it, it where it needed to be you know it just needed a little bit more profile Ren Jing actually was the one who suggested signing Zhang Yixin because he did have a really strong relationship with the brand and, and a, an authentic history with the Converse Chuck Taylor. And 
Um, and she did that deal, and then Annie Chen came in and helped to nurture that deal going forward. But we had all these people come in, and they knew exactly what to do. They, they knew where the brand needed to be positioned, and fundamentally, we, were, we, we just got we, – we set it up, and we had a great team running it, and it was a lot of fun to, to just sell inventory, positioning, product, and then amplifying the brand. And it, it sort of all came to life beautifully in the course of like three and a half years, four years. So it was a lot of fun. I worked with you in a couple of times on some Shanghai Pride stuff. And it was just one of those examples where we went to so many brands and asked them if they wanted to help. And yes, I know it was always going to be a challenge when we, we had to, you know, on behalf of the organizers of a volunteer organization, we had to face the legal department of some of these companies. And of course, they're going to say no. But Converse is like, where do we sign, man? This is great. We're, we're totally into this. It's like no brainer, you know, just seemed like the perfect kind of fit that it was just like, this is we want to be there. This is important. Inclusion is important for us as a brand. And we, we want to sponsor it. I was so proud of that, Bryce. You know, you did some amazing work spearheading. You know, I know you were doing that pro bono, I think. And, you know, you worked so passionately on in that area. And I remember the, our first meetings. Um, even going back to the, I think it was the the running, the run. You know, we did some pride, the pride runs. And I think we were Nike running yeah, club. Right. Yeah. And um, but the Converse one was that was the first thing we did when I joined. That was my first initiative at the at the brand was to do Shanghai Pride that week. And we did um, we had this this really really amazing Pride uh, installation. We we were the first brand to do a Pride pop up. We did a actual Shanghai Pride pop up event. Like it, nobody, like people would go underground and like they do stuff behind the scenes. Brands were a little bit afraid to go out, put it out in front. We built a store, if you remember, and we actually did a consumer event. We did an event there, and that was really really cool. I think we probably the first. Like I don't even know if we knew the the risks involved, but we weren't really that interested in worrying about that we just wanted to do the right thing and that was a meaningful event for us just moving on to your your current role at jack wolfskin the camping outdoor category it's grown tremendously in china camping is a thing i participated in a couple car pitches about a year ago and they always pitched that you could drive the SUV to go camping. Jack Wolfskin, it's the number one outdoor brand in Germany. How do you compete in, in the outdoor category? What's the differentiating point and where do you see the whole outdoor thing going in China? Yeah, it was funny when I joined Jack Wolfskin, you know, Jack Wolfskin's owned by Callaway Golf. So they're the parent company of Wolfskin. They own, uh, they own Callaway, they own Travis Matthew and a number of other innovation brands um, related to outdoor, sort of this, this, this idea this, this idea that we call the, the modern golf lifestyle. People, my peers in China were like, wait, what? You're, you're, you're joining Wolfskin? Like, what's, the, what's with the pivot? And so for me, it was like, I remember when I, when I was doing Nike running in, back in 2012, and there were a few people running. Not a lot of people were jogging at the time, especially at the at the younger levels. We're in a similar situation right now with the outdoors. It's just it's just an area that's on the we're in the foothills, but very very soon the entire country is going to be at base camp, and you know huge a massive population is going to be trying to climb the mountain. If I were to use sort of an you know outdoor analogy, and it's fun to be on the sort of the cusp of a huge movement. You know, so for me, um, you know, I think doing it, you know, 12 years ago or, you know, whatever with the running, with, with running and jogging and then women's sports was something really meaningful because that was really just starting. 
and this is really just starting to, you know, you think about China as population, only about 8% of the population is actively uh, doing outdoors, doing outdoor sport. 100 million, okay, it's 100 million people, that's a lot of people, but it's still only 8% of the population, so... You know, the, the, there's a huge opportunity to get people more acquainted with the beauty and splendor of outdoor. And then you think about the, you know, if you if you start to unpack that a little bit, about ninety, more than just a little over ninety percent of people of that group is coming from first and second tier cities, Bryce. So then you think about the opportunity in front of us across the entire the entire country, and you realize that this is only going to continue to grow because it's so accessible. As well, and so with the government backing it, and the government backing outdoor sport and activity, and making way and creating infrastructure and so forth for that, like this is this is going to be a trend that's going to be ongoing if, um, for the next twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years. And and somebody who grew up outdoors, exploring, you know, in the woods, you know, fishing, camping, just exploring as a young kid. And understand having a really strong relationship with the outdoors growing up in Michigan, I know what this means. You know, I know how this can make you feel and what the benefits are to the exploration and discovery of the outdoors. And I think that this is exactly what young people in China are going to be looking for for, the, for quite quite a long time. Part of building the Converse brand, I mean, you mentioned the name of the, a celebrity or a, a known kind of figure. Uh, uh, what would you do? Uh, I mean, would you would you course a similar path for Jack Wolfson, identify someone that's really entrenched in uh, in, in the outdoors, in climbing, um, and, and try to use a similar course to build that brand? Uh, what's the plan? Jack Wolfskin has, it's so funny, Jack Wolfskin has a rich history in China. We're not starting from square one here. Um, in fact, Tri-State brought Wolfskin over 15, 20 years ago. So this, there has been, it was one of the first brands for that, that really started to catalyze outdoor apparel in China, believe it or not. So this brand is not an unknown. There, there are a lot of devotees of Jack Wolfskin out there. And the population of, of that audience is a little bit older now because they've been around for quite a while. So our task is to really, you know, introduce it into the next to the next generation and kind of revitalize thing. You kind of asked about Bryce. You asked about positioning and how you, you know, kind of where are you where do you want to put it and how you're going to compete within the marketplace. And well, we just think that Wolfskin is probably one of the most authentic innovation-led outdoor brands that can help enable outdoor discovery in a very very sustainable and and for our consumer, comfortable and also a very, very safe way. You know, our product is state-of-the-art innovation. In some cases, we've created a product that, that others are still trying to create. For example, a, ja a jacket, a, a hiking jacket that's completely tapeless in its manufacturing processes. So we're doing a lot of different things, but we think that authenticity is our number one advantage and our most important area of positioning the brand because that is what Chinese our consumer in China is looking for first and foremost like how authentic are you are you real <laughs> can I trust you can I trust your product to keep me safe up there you know and to and to be comfortable up there and to perform up there and so forth so um, we're gonna we're, we're really really focused on that and part of that Ali to your point is to ensure that we're aligning ourselves with people who can help us to authenticate both authenticate the Benefits of outdoor discovery, 
what does that unlock within you? How can you feel about, how do you want to feel about going outdoors? Why should I care? And make and, and, and helping to deliver that message and then also um, helping to authenticate the product that Jack Wolf can create, you know. And we found somebody, you know, over the course of the past year, been doing a lot of work trying to find the right, the, the, you know, kind of like the right co-messenger of that because it's going to be our voice, but it should also be authenticated by someone else. And we found uh, Zhang Zhenyue. Probably be familiar with Ai Yue. Like, this guy is one of the most important musical cross-cultural icons of the region of the past 20 years, you know? So he's our generation. We're all similar. We're all the similar age group. And he's just come into his love of the outdoors, um, you know, and publicly really amplifying that adoration of the outdoors over the past couple of years. Uh, number one influencer on Red when it comes to, authentic, when it comes to outdoor and um, creates a lot of beautiful content. So we work, we're working together with him right now to relaunch the brand. He makes it so easy because all you need to kind of do with Ayue is to bring a camera and, and walk around with him, and then he does the rest. It's, it's, it's very natural and very, very authentic and, um, and very poetic because he's an artist, and it's, it's exactly what we're looking for. Uh, my wife and I go out to, uh, to basically a Hangzhou area quite a bit, so um, lots of time in Anji. A lot of time in uh, in Hang, uh, well, yeah, and then all the way down to uh, even Chengdu, Sichuan, and all of this. So we're big outdoorsy people. One of the things that really that that I found I think quite entertaining was um, after having climbed I don't know three thousand uh, plus meters. Uh, one of the sites that we saw um, were, and this is over the winter, were basically trailers that would typically attach themselves to four by fours um, installed. Uh, parallel to each other in a large park um, and this is and so basically what it was is, is people that are being incentivized so so I guess what I'm getting to is that you know the typical kind of outdoor adventure uh, DIY you know wear your boots and climb you know this six hours six kilometers whatever I, I, I think that I, I, I still have yet to see but I see a lot of people with luxury cars that drive all the way to the top of the mountain to take beautiful pictures but you know and and they spend the night in these luxury trailer um trailer cars so so what you know what are we looking at over here and 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 i'm just curious to understand what outdoors means for for chinese consumers it's this idea uh, there's a couple things you know i think it starts with it began really as more of a social activity um, no question about it. Um, and, and there's also a component early on, right, uh, in terms of catalyzing it, is the health aspect of it. You know, because, it, you know, our consumer here has been, over the past 10 years, looking for different ways to, you know, to enjoy both the more, more dimensions of a social relationship with each other and also things like nature, as well as the health aspects of it, the health and wellness aspects of it, and that's just the 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 mark of a maturing society, <laughs> you know. So that discovery is not really surprising. The fact that outdoors can play an important role in both of those areas, the family aspect of it, you know, something to do with your kids. I have three kids in China, and I I, I don't. There's just not that much to do because there's. It's, 
it's it's such a busy place and people are working so hard and everybody's always it's, it's moving really really fast and on school years go by and it's like what did you do <laughs> you just kids went to school and the outdoors has become a place for families to gather to and to discover and let's not discount the the covid phenomenon because it has basically unleashed this wave of domestic travel that had never been seen before because first thing people did when they were young was to get a passport and get out of China. But now, for the past few years, people have been been enabled to rediscover, you know, the beauty of this country and Part of that rediscovery has come through rediscovering it through outdoors. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of different dimensions of it. It's happened really organically, but it's happened really, really fast as well. Of all the outdoor sports activities in the consumer's life today, jogging is number one and hiking is number two in terms of active participation. So if you think about you know, the 300 million people who do sport, that's the, that's the statistic that they've always used, but who maybe go out for a jog or who are active. 78% of them are jogging and 60% of them are, are hiking. Hiking has become an incredibly important part of the lives of our consumer and young people in China today. So yeah, I think health for sure, social for sure, and then rediscovery of China um, through the lens of, you know, through the, the catalyst being COVID over the past few years has all helped spur a, a real move, movement into the outdoors. One thing that you kind of mentioned as well is also child development. I think you were trying to get to that earlier with the families as well. As kids grow up, there's a lot more time being spent with mom, dad, and child in the outdoors. Because that learning you won't get at school, especially with COVID over the last couple of years. But, you know, we were, we were pushing really hard culturally back in the day when we were thinking about sport, trying to get people to really, to really look at childhood differently and to get kids moving you know that that has we we do see a lot more youth participation in sport but outdoors is a great complement to that so it's not about competitive hiking it's about going and experiencing the outdoors together as a family and it's still a very active and very healthy thing to do but it's there's just so much space in this country to be able to go do that too and i think with the government on board and and supporting it we'll only see more and more options and opportunities for families to go do that together so it's great you know, you see people pitching the tent on the weekend in the park, in the city parks, you know, and sort of like discovering what that feels like, you know, and how relaxing that can be just to sit outside in the, in the city parks. So you see the tents up all the time. Um, and so the next step from that would be like, let's, let's take the tent out to the countryside. And then from there, it's like, let's take the tent out to a hillside or maybe the base of a mountain, you know, or something like that. And the evolution of that has been a real catalyst in terms of the uh, discovery and the next step, which is a hike, like a, pr a proper hike, and, and then a trek, and then going up the hillside, you know. So it's all part of this sort of what I, would, what I think is quite a linear progression in terms of where the out... And it's almost like a metaphor for where things are moving and how fast things are moving, but it sort of starts there, and it quickly progresses. Um, and that... that first experience camping and for many people it's you know this notion of glamping or whatever but at least it's getting outside you know and even if it's just really really comfortable in those first stages it's comfortable and safe but it gets you it helps you to develop a relationship with the outdoors and then from there it's like okay maybe i'm ready to do it on my own with my own tent and the quality of that experience has 
improved a thousand percent let's be honest there's so many great places to go now and they're so well organized and managed that was the insight that i had over the last three years with you know lockdowns and covid and not being able to leave the country was how well organized and how uh how developed some of these places are that's why china just never ceases to amaze it's like talking about listen and respond You know, this is an entire industry that's listened and responded, you know, and new industries were created in China because of sort of what's happened for the betterment of the future, you know. And I do think that what's happened over the past few years has been a huge catalyst for the outdoor industry going forward. Do you think there's going to be product innovation made specifically for China? And I can't think of anything, but I'm just wondering, because you're you're still quite nascent and there's still so much opportunity and i wonder some of the insights or some of the learnings that you have on how people camp over here um are, are, is that something that's planned or yeah one of the things that we're working really closely with our uh global team right now on is, is a concept called light hiking uh and it's not a china consumer insight as much as it's probably more of a global consumer insight that's guiding it but we have worked closely with them to to accelerate that product innovation Uh, in line because of how fast things are growing, but how the climate here is just different than a northern and western European climate. It's, it's so incredibly warm in spring and summer uh, in China. And so creating really, really high-performing, lightweight product wasn't as important to those regions of Europe as it is today. With But with climate change, it's all accelerating. But in China, it's amplified even more with the extreme heat of the summer across the entire country. So I wouldn't say this is a China-led development, but we're trying to accelerate that with their, with our teams to make sure that the breadth of the line is adequate for our consumer base in China. So I think that's probably the big one, Ali. It's a great question. Um, and we'll see, you know, what else, you know, what else unfolds and what else the needs are for the consumer here beyond beyond that. But that's a, that's certainly a really early one. And just as a follow-up to that question, do you think that is how foreign brands can stay ahead of the very competitive local market? Uh, a podcast guest uh, on before, he said that it's simply that the local brands understand the local customers better. Is this something that foreign players can also, is it, and they can actively participate in this as well? Or do you feel that that local brands have the upper hand here? I, I don't know if I'd fully agree with the. I, I, I think that might be a little bit of a an easy, an, maybe an oversimplified answer that local brands understand the consumer better than Western or than than Western brands do or or foreign brands do. I, most foreign brands have local teams on the ground in China, and those local teams are phenomenal at what they do, and they're able to. <laughs> They're, they're the they're the pull they have the full pulse of the consumer I think there's four things on my mind that are advan- advantageous to global or to, to local brands that help to set them or to help them to compete at a much higher level than they ever have one is product design there's so much more talent now you know within the country and there's still you know China's still importing a lot of great talent from around the world in terms of product design and they're willing to pay people and compensate people pretty well to top designers to come into China to con- you know to do that. So product design has advanced incredibly well for the local for the local brands. The second is retail experiences and digital experiences. And you look at 
you know, walk the street and see which brands are sitting under a China holding company in Anta or Lining and so forth, these brands who are, who are expanding their portfolios and see the, the incredible retail experiences that they're able to deliver to consumers now. You know, and so our, our, the, the local brands have become incredibly adept at, at both online and offline um, uh, retail. And they're able, because of the size and scale of these brands, you know, of these companies, they're able to, or they're able to enjoy more of an economies of scale in terms of real estate, right? Because they have, maybe they have six or seven brands, so they can negotiate with a developer uh, to get the better spaces because they have so many more brands in the portfolio that could require space at a single mall, you know? So they have that advantage as well. The third one is speed and supply chain. Most of the local brands own their own supply chains. Um, they own their own manufacturing. So they can get to market in six months versus a lot of global brands who are still on the 18-month timeline or life cycle. And so being able to respond to the consumer from a speed perspective in terms of manufacturing, design, all the way to go to market uh, is, is really, really advantageous. And the last one, and probably the most important one, something that we can all relate to, is just the, the willingness to invest. So local brands have 20, 20, 30, 40. They, they're not looking at, this is not like a project for them. This is their, this is their country. <laughs> so they're going to be here forever, right? They're, they're going to invest in their investment. I don't know what their investment appetite for profitability versus their appetite for profitability is in the short five, five to 10 year term. But in the, they're thinking about this 10, 20, 30 years. Like they're building their companies for that. So... Maybe they're, they're not tied to the same long-term investment models as foreign brands are who are looking for the, profit, you know, for, the, for the margins and the profitability in the shorter term. So they're willing to invest so much more in marketing and, and communications and celebrity and retail and so forth. You know, the local brands are really, really strong at the moment. So it's, it's, quite in, it's really interesting to see, to see that. I, I'm not sure if, it's, if they have a better you know, a better pulse or understanding of the local consumer, though. I don't think it's accurate to say that they have other, they have other advantages. Now, for us, what does that mean for a foreign brand? Uh, it means that we have to be very, very personal. We have to be deeply of the culture, and we have to be very understanding and, uh, of the cultural trends and what's happening, and we have to have our fingers on the pulse of culture and really be able to move in a in a very deeply personal way and develop deeply personal relationships with our consumer as a foreign brand and that's not outrageous to think that that's possible because it we've been brands have been doing that for a long time and the ones who get it right over the long term are the ones who are really really continuing to invest in those relationships and and to drive that that local culturally relevant relationship so i, I think it's i think there's a lot of advantages that local brands have but i i do think that you know when done right and when when you have a long-term view of what you want to do with your brand and you have the patience and a real deep motivation to build in China, you can absolutely do it. MJ, we get a lot of younger listeners. I'm sure that they all want to know how they can get a cool career path like yours. Is there any suggestions? I've always wondered about was the appetite for younger people or even older professionals who are curious about working somewhere else, what is their willing, what is their appetite for that? And how far are they willing to go? You know, and what are they willing to sacrifice too? You know, so for me, it was coming out with a one-way ticket. You know, I'm not the only one who's done that. You know, I don't feel special because I did that, but I did it, you know, one-way ticket with no, with, with not even a visa in hand. 
and trying to figure it out and trying to figure out whether or not I wanted to be in a different place. And then two, what did I want to do there? And then, um, and then doing it and working hard and, and paying the price a little bit, you know, cause sometimes, you, you know, you, you, when you, are you willing to pay the price of go, you know, not getting an expat deal, like paying your own rent, you know, paying your own insurance, paying, you know, paying double tax if you're an American, you know, all these different things. Are you willing to take a hit kind of maybe financially to a certain extent, but also, you know, just risking some, taking some risk? And I can, I can tell you that that is, that pays off if you're diligent and you want it. Don't do things conditionally based, you know, and don't be so demanding on what you're, what you think you're entitled to, to go overseas, take the crack, go do it, see how it shakes out. It's two to three years of your life. And you know, you never know what can transpire. I think there's probably a lot of companies who would just love to see that hunger from people versus, oh, I'm only going to come out if, if you give me this, 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 and this, and I need to have a hardship deal built in too. And it's that, no, no, man, this is like one of the great cities of the world right now. This is one of the most important markets in the world right now. The learning you're going to get from working in this marketplace <laughs> is far more valuable, you know, than, than a hardship package that you would have gotten in 2010 because of pollution in Beijing. You know, it's like, so I would just say for anyone at any level of their career, like if you ever have a chance to go overseas and work, you should absolutely 100% do it. Ali, are we ready for the A-B test? We absolutely are ready for the A-B test. What I usually do is I, I throw two words or two sentences or two phrases at our guest and they get to ch pick either of the two. Um, if you want to pause and explain um, your choice, feel free. Some of them are fairly obvious. Some might need a little bit more explanation. Um, so I'm going to go for it. Uh, basketball or American football? Basketball. Shanghai or Hong Kong? Hong Kong. <laughs> How many years in Shanghai again was it? 10 years in Shanghai, 13 <laughs> years in Hong Kong. And, and, and maybe I'll qualify Please. it. I'll say... Actually, I, I think Victoria Harbor is my answer. Because of the views, because of the sailing. I, I love Hong Kong almost. You know, I love the people. I have so many relationships there. I have so many friends. But the Victoria Harbor is just magical. And everything about it, the view, the beauty of the water itself, the, the fact that it flows through the city like that, the, um, but then going on a boat at any time. And the, the view at night is just unbelievable. So, yeah, I just love the Victoria Harbor. Hong Kong. Uh, Phil Knight or Marquis Mills Converse? Mr. Converse. Marquis Mill Converse. And, and really because of he was an in, inventor, right? He didn't, he, was, he didn't adapt. He invented. No, but he, he adapted from, you know, if you read Shoe Dog, you know, like he, he, evolved, he evolved a product, whereas Marquis Mills Converse invented something. Uh, insights or innovation? Uh, insights, because insights, I don't think innovation is useful without the insights to guide them. Uh, Alibaba or Amazon? Shinola. <laughs> it's a great Detroit retail brand uh, <laughs> near my <laughs> No, I, I'm an Amazon. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't use. I use Amazon more when I'm in the states, and you know, I think they're equal. Uh, Pistons or the Bulls? Oh, Bulls! And I'm from Michigan, but I did college in Detroit. And sorry, d college in Chicago. But um, but yeah, I was I was always partial to the Bulls. Camping or glamping? Camping. Um, rabbits or dragons? Rabbits. Have you ever seen the movie Watership Down? It's a, one of the most beautiful stories ever told in animation and so and it was all about a group of rabbits so uh it stuck with me my entire life i'm delighted that's the year of the rabbit
A Chicago deep dish or Xiaolong Bao? Uh, Chicago deep dish all day. <laughs> <laughs> you, can only, you can only put one piece in your stomach at a time, so you order the whole pizza and the rest is like, that's the week's food, but um, it's magical. <laughs> and uh, Cages in Shanghai does a wonderful Chicago deep dish pizza. MJ, thanks for being on the show. It was a fantastic program. Lots of great insights. Thanks again for being on the show. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Really, really fun. Always, uh, always up for a chat if you want, if you need me. That's great. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode. Join us in a few weeks for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day. <laughs>